Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you uh, again this morning. And, uh, you know, I was thinking as this passage was read about one of the things, uh, one of my least favorite things about being human. <laughs> um, if you know me, uh, you know this well about me, and I know God's designed us this way, but I get frustrated many a times with the very fact that I need, um, that I need anything from anyone at any time. I'm not very good at delegation. Um, and this shows up really well uh, when I need to ask for help, when I need to ask for help. Um, whenever I do ask for help, I feel as though I sound like this guy. Let's watch. Check it out. Look at I'm in really bad shape. Come on, please. Bob, please. Bob. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I Bob, need, Bob. I need, I need. Bob. Give me, give okay, me. Okay. Please. All right, all right, please. all right. <laughs> and we can laugh and we know it's messed up, but who doesn't here want to be the strong, independent person that everybody else leans on? You know, nobody enjoys necessarily having to go to others to lean on others. We want to be entrepreneurial, so self-disciplined that we can finally pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it all on our own. A lot of us are on Twitter, right? Or at least some of us. Um, I recently read a string of tweets of people who were answering the question, why don't I ask for help? Why don't I ask for help? And these are the top three that I came across. First, uh, the first one is from Freelance Liz. Oh, thanks, Freelance Liz. She tweets, I hate it. I think it's an admission of failure. Everyone else copes. My second favorite um, was from at VeryBadCat13. Um, I don't want to be resented. Feel like I should be able to do everything alone. I hate burdening folks. And then my favorite one was from Atlanta Mom, who tweeted, My issue is control. Letting someone else help makes me feel guilty, out of control, and like I'm not as efficient as I should be. Whether we feel like we're out of control, whether we feel like we're failures, or we just don't want to burden people, we hate asking for help. And that's why it becomes one of the hardest things and one of the last things on our list to do. Um, even when we're, it's the only option left, it takes all the work we can to finally admit that finally we need help. And then maybe we'll admit that we need. This morning I'm going to say something that may sound really self-serving, and I don't mean it to, but if there's one thing I want you to remember as you walk away from today, I want you to know that I need your faith. I need your faith. You heard me right. I need your faith and you need mine. The people sitting around you, they need your faith, and you need theirs. I mean, that's what our passage is talking about that we heard read this morning from the book of Hebrews. We need each other's faith. We need the person who's sitting around us. We need their faith. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, Gabe, I'm not the one who's in danger here, okay? I've got my act together. But what we find throughout Scripture is that the strongest of us are just a few decisions, a few circumstances away from throwing it all away. Even as I think about some of my biggest fears, if I can share it with you, one of my biggest fears is that after preaching week after week that Jesus is the true Son of God, that He's better than anything this world has to offer, later on in life I get bored, I get tired, I get disillusioned, and I quit it all. I've heard stories of plenty of preachers and pastors who've done that. It's not outside the scope of reality and possibility. It's one of my greatest fears. 
And maybe you weren't expecting a pastor to say that this morning, or maybe you're a little more cynical and you're thinking, oh, he's overstating that just for rhetoric. Um, But no, it's a true statement. I need your faith, and you need mine. Um, This past year, I read a book um, that kind of rocked my world in terms of my understanding of the pastoral vocation. It's called Dangerous Calling. And in it, he talks about a lot of the issues that pastors face. Um, you know, pastors aren't perfect people, and you're thinking, of course they're not, right? <laughs> but, uh, um, some of you are like, oh, really? And most of you are like, of course. Um, well, in this book, Dangerous Calling, you find some of the biggest problems that pastors wrestle through. And one of them is isolation, is isolation. And Paul Tripp, the author of Dangerous Calling, who was a pastor for a while, he writes, For much of my Christian life and a portion of my ministry, I had no idea that my walk with God was a community project. I had no idea that the Christianity of the New Testament is distinctly relational from beginning to end. I understood none of the dangers inherent in attempting to live the Christian life on my own. And it almost destroyed him. It almost destroyed his family, his ministry, his own walk with God. And you see, I'm convinced more and more as I scour the pages of Scripture as I see more and more of our own personal experiences and I look at my own life, the game changer for those who persevere in their faith and those who do not endure to the end, it all comes down to the relationships we choose to surround ourselves with. Pastors included here, I need your faith. I mean, kids, I need your faith to be reminded that I have to be dependent upon God the Father. You're not just the church of the future. We talk about that, but you're the church of today. That's really important. If you're a newer Christian, I need your faith to remind me of the freshness of the gospel, of how dead I was in my sin before I was given new life in Jesus Christ. If you've been walking with Christ now for a good while, you're a seasoned Christian, I need your faith. Because without your faith, in those moments of drought, I need to be reminded that this isn't all life is that one day these seasons will change and that there are different ups and downs in the Christian journey. And through your experience, I need to hear that. I need your faith and you need mine. And the author of Hebrews, he's doing everything he can to really get that across to us. Um, And as we've been walking through chapter 12 this past couple weeks, he's described the Christian life as us sitting and watching the series of Mad Men, right? It's a good TV show. No, he doesn't describe it as entertainment. It's not something where we're going to watch a movie. He describes the Christian life like a race that requires our full attention like we just sang about. It requires everything for us to endure to the end. And two weeks ago, we saw our role. And looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, we choose to pursue after him. Two weeks, or last week, we saw God's role and his role in disciplining us and actually crafting the trail that we tread. And this week, we see the critical importance of community, the church, the local church, integrated relationships, and how important that is for us to endure to the end. The author's main point for all these these six verses comes right here in the middle of verse 15. Um, And this shades the whole passage where he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Ooh, that's a weighty statement, isn't it? If you look at this word, see to it, he's not asking a, a, a question. He's not sheepishly giving us some advice, but he's commanding us to get into some sanctified meddling in each other's lives, okay? This word, see to it here, is the same word where we get our word for pastor or elder. 
But he's not talking to a group of pastors. He's talking to the local church. He's saying each one of us has responsibility for the person sitting next to you, near you, that they might obtain the grace of God, that they don't fail in reaching the grace of God. See to it that no one fails. No one. Not just the people you like, the people you choose to sit next to on Sunday morning, but the people you dislike. Not the people who are like you, but the people who are starkly different from you. The people who talk too much in your community group. The people who don't talk enough in your community group. The people that when they sing, they're so off-key, you can't focus on the words. These are the people, these are the people we're called to be engaged in so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may even think, wow, that sounds really good. That sounds really rosy. A community who loves each other sacrificially, and when they say hard words, they stick it out because they're so honest with one another. Oh, I want that. But then when we come to the church, many times, that's not our experience, is it? Many times our experience is that we're quite a bit of a consumeristic crew. Um, We come because we've got really good free coffee. Thank you, Gary Williams. Um, We come because... You know, this is really good for my faith. This particular style of service fits my personality. And those things aren't bad. I don't want you to hear that. That's that's not what we're saying. But it can't just be that. It can't just be about what you get out of it. If we're not growing as a community of faith and seeing ourselves as contributing to each other, we'll never grow deep and wide as a church. We'll never be impacting and following Jesus on mission as we've been called to. What if we actually saw to it that no one failed to obtain the grace of God? What if that actually was our motto here? And we didn't get offended when somebody saw to it in our lives. Um, well, to actually do that, I think there are two things that my faith needs from yours, okay? First, I need your faith to fight for mine. And then secondly, I need your faith to watch out for mine. So first, I need your faith to fight for mine. And... Um, I want to know, will you fight for my faith? Do you love me enough to fight for my faith? Do you love the person sitting next to you enough to fight for their faith? Look at verse 14 with me. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This word strive here is a pretty aggressive word to be coupled with peace. It actually has the idea of being pursued in hot pursuit. It's much more like hunting down prey than it is giving a hug. Uh, it's, it's very, very intense. Literally, it's used for the persecution of the church many times throughout the New Testament. Um, and what the author does is he turns this twisted zeal and he says, I want you to chase down peace like that. Instead of chasing after the person who rubs you the wrong way in such anger, I want you to chase down peace with that person. Pursue peace. In other words, fight for peace. And the reason he can say that is because peace doesn't equate with surfacy niceness. That's not peace. Peace requires a lot more intentional energy than a five-second smile. It does. Peace requires that we actually get engaged in each other's lives. Some of us in here 
think that we're actually at peace with God and our fellow man, but what we've actually done is we're just avoiding deep relationships with either. You see, peace that's offered with Jesus is the peace of acceptance, such that rest rushes into the restless heart. Peace isn't the absence of conflict, but rather peace is the presence of God's love in your life that when conflict arises, you pursue peace with the other tenaciously. You strive after it as though you're chasing down prey. I want you to imagine the early church. Um, It was pretty different in some regards to our current context. Some not so different, but some parts very different. In that, if you got ticked at somebody sitting next to you, you couldn't go to the church right down the street because you were the only church in town. I mean, that was it. If you weren't a part of that church, you weren't a part of any church. And in those days, with very good reason, if you weren't a part of a church, it was a sign of judgment, not freedom. It was a sign of discipline and disalignment with God rather than joy and celebration of exploration. When the congregation, you had a very diverse crew. You had slaves sitting next to free. You had the rich serving the poor. You had men and women dining together and enjoying one another. You had Jews and Gentiles learning from God's word together. The young and the old were praying for each other. And it was beautiful how the gospel was the main unifying factor. Not age. Well, they're a lot like me. They're going through the same trials that I am. It wasn't race. It wasn't socioeconomic status or gender. But as you can imagine, this diverse crew, when they got together, this could be easily a hotbed for disagreement, right? You've got different cultural backgrounds, different cultural values, depending on where you fit in the socioeconomic status, right? Um, Different uh, personalities. And how has the church ever strived for peace with everyone? And this is at the core of what the gospel is. As we always seek to navigate what it means to follow Jesus, we go back to the gospel. And at the core of the gospel is the understanding that we're all broken people in need of God's grace. We don't gather together on Sunday mornings because we say, ha-ha, we've all got it figured out. We're the crew of the figured out ones. No, we gather together because we've all admitted we're all broken. And we need to learn from Jesus. We need to listen to him. We need to follow him. We need to be corrected by him because he's the only one who's got it all figured out. And when we finally come to the realization that we need to grow in our Christ likeness, that we actually have room for growth, then finally the door will be cracked just enough or you might think that God is using those who are sitting next to you to be those refining agents, to be the ones who are saying, hey, what's going on in life? Hey, how can I come alongside of you? I mean, think about it. What does Jesus say is one of the main ways that the world will know we're one of his disciples? Is it because, hey, I can regurgitate really good information? No. But the truth of the gospel, this is the key thing. When the truth of the gospel has become so real in your life and saturated your heart with such depths, such that you love one another. This is the outworking of the truth of the gospel. That's when the world will know that we are his disciples. I mean, this is crucial for the race of faith. If we're ever going to strive for peace with everyone, I need your faith to endure, and you need mine. 
And Satan, God's adversary, as we continue in this life in the midst of brokenness and await God's renewal of all things, he knows this really well about us. Um, and, and he does whatever he can to divide and conquer God's people. In Tolkien's book, uh, one of his books, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, he tells of a time when God-fearing elves joined God-fearing dwarfs, which if you're a nerd, you know that doesn't really happen very easily. Um, but that's if you're a nerd. Um, Elves and dwarves, they don't get along very well. Um, But as they begin the journey together, they start to throw down curses on one another and they get in this intense fight. And one of the older, wiser elves, he steps in and he says, Indeed, and nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. How true is that? When Satan's working to divide the church over petty issues and because somebody might have slighted me a little bit, I don't think I want to go because I don't want to see that person. It's one of the greatest tools of Satan to divide and conquer rather than allow the church to flourish as God's designed it. Strive for peace with everyone. There's not any wiggle room there. So I want you to ask yourself this morning as you're striving, am I a part of the problem? Or a part of the solution? Am I a part of the problem or am I a part of the solution? If you're someone who's always opinionated but never engaged, if you're someone uh, who thinks they've got it all together and you keep yourself distant and uninvolved, that's not peace. Rather than striving after peace, you're striving at avoiding. And you're never going to find God's peace that way and you're falling into the evil one's trap. I mean, look... There are reasons that, that people leave the church. There are good reasons for people to leave a church. But according to God's word, they're not because my feelings got hurt. They're not because I, I didn't get along with someone. Rather, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, doesn't he? Blessed are the peacemakers, not just the peace receivers, but the peacemakers, those who are so tenacious in pursuing and striving after peace that they can confront and love, but chase after peace with utter zeal. Being in genuine community means someone's going to say something that ticks you off. Somebody's going to do something that's going to disappoint you. Someone's going to do something that rubs you the wrong way. How are you going to respond? How are you already making decisions now on how you respond before those conflicts come? Will you strive for peace with everyone? Another reason we know this peace isn't just skin deep is actually what he says in the very same breath. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I mean, (laughs) that's pretty intense. Holiness is pretty intense. I need people to not only fight for peace, but to fight for holiness. Why? Because without it, none of us will see the Lord. Holiness means to be set apart. And it also means to be whole, to be completely integrated. All things are fitting together rightly so that when we come to follow Jesus, all of who we are has been made holy in Christ, but all that we do is now being refined and reformed to more mirror Christ. Now, we've seen earlier in Hebrews that God declares us holy through the shed blood of Jesus, his death on the cross, But the holiness that we have been given needs to be practiced and lived out. 
Theologians have used the word sanctification for this many a times. It's the process of being sanctified, being made holy, and reflecting the holiness that we've already been made in Jesus. One commentator, he writes, The point is that we must pursue holiness because what we think and say and do now matters eternally. What you do matters. We're not sitting here and saying whatever you do doesn't matter in your life anymore. To the contrary, Paul writes, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's often put this way, sow a thought and reap an action, sow an action and reap a habit, sow a habit and reap a lifestyle, sow a lifestyle and reap a character, sow a character and reap a destiny. What we do matters, friends. And so we need to fight for holiness together whether it's joining a running club, whether it's engaging a study group or building a team at work, we all know accountability is really critical if we're ever going to endure or succeed. We think about that in almost every aspect of life. And then when we get to holiness, we say, whoa, 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 (laughs) ah, that's between me and Jesus. All right, Um, I got this. But that's not what we see in scripture. Not if we want to endure to the end. Yeah, it's scary, but it's for our good. And the author, he doesn't say that that fighting for holiness is just the pastor's job. He's saying that it's all of us. See to it. The whole congregation, remember? You see, normally when we think of holiness, we think it works like this. We sit at coffee and we say, ah, I just need to work harder at reading my Bible this week. Ah, you know what? I just got to get better at praying. Um, Or... Oh, I just need to work harder at whatever that is in my life. Whereas sometimes fighting for holiness means I'm so weak in this area, I need someone else to come alongside of me and keep me accountable, to be the encourager. Because I know I'm not strong enough on my own. And that's okay. That's okay. Robert um, Murray Machane, he was a brilliant preacher of the 19th century, said, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. Why does he say something like this? Because people not only need to hear about Jesus, but they need to see Jesus in you. They need to see you living out the gospel so that they say, oh, there's something so attractive about your life. There's something so beautiful. Not that you're perfect, but the peace and the rest that comes from the gospel when we rest in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. Such that people say, oh, I see something different in you. They're seeing Jesus. Do people see Jesus when they see me? Are you asking that question? Your kids need it. Your roommates need it. Your housemates, your spouse, your church. And so I ask you this morning, are you fighting for your holiness by fighting for others? Are you fighting for your holiness by fighting for others? Do you see it as part of your responsibility to fight for the holiness of the person who's sitting next to you? Your friend's holiness, your fam's holiness, Why are you here? What are you doing all this for? Is it just for you or is it for the church? This is critical. And on the receiving end, do we have the courage to ask for help? Like I said at the very beginning, I hate doing that. (laughs) It's not not a strong suit for me. I need to ask help on asking for help, right? Um, So some of you might just need to say, Gabe, you need to ask for help for that. Um, are Are we letting our need for privacy and anonymity Hold us back from, from holiness. Oh, a cloud came. 
I mean, uh, this just got real serious here, folks. Um, you know, it's funny when we don't have the lights on, you know, you feel the weather. It's kind of like we're out of the park. It's beautiful. Um, I mean, who has permission in your life to call you out on something? Have you given anyone permission to do that? Another Christian? Someone in your community group? Someone here in the church? I need your faith to fight for mine. Will you? But I, I don't just need your faith to fight for mine. I also need your faith to watch out for mine as well. And one of the key ways the author wants us to look out for each other is to watch out. Here's a big idea. Watch out for contagious complacency. Ooh, yikes. It just sounds ornery. Look at verse 15. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, the first time I read that, I have to be real with you, I thought it was just talking about interpersonal angst. You know, someone is bitter at someone else, and you find this like toxic community because everybody are ticked at each other. But the further I read on, the further I saw that, yes, that's true in general, but that's not what this author is talking about here. He's not talking about interpersonal angst. Actually, he's talking about a kind of toxic person who is living in unrepentant sin and says, you know what? I'm okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm living in unrepentant sin. I'm going to be fine. A kind of self-righteous, radical independence that can poison a whole community. And we need to watch out for this. That's what he's talking about. Now, you're probably wondering, where on earth did you get that from, Gabe? And that's a great question. Um, You should ask that question. And and the reason is, is this verse is a reference to a passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29. That's why in all of our translations, you'll find root of bitterness in quotations in your Bible. And you're like, why on earth do they have that in quotations? What's going on there? Um, It's in this Deuteronomy passage that Moses is talking to the nation of Israel. And he says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. I mean, just like the nation of Israel, we can hear God's word and completely ignore it. God doesn't really mean that. And then we sit there and we think, you know what, actually I'm doing okay. It's not that big of a deal. Why talk about it? I'm fine. So we assume God's grace. We belittle it, and then we belittle God's grace long enough, we begin to think that we don't need it at all because we're perfectly fine in and of ourselves. And here's the truth. My lack of faith, your lack of faith as an individual can destroy our whole community. The nation of Israel got this. I mean, One person, one family, one faction can destroy an entire generation of faith. And many can become defiled because of this unrepentant sin, this intense hyper-individualism where we shake our fist at God and say, I'm okay, leave me alone. Whether we like it or not, we're that interconnected. You can't just check out and think it's all up to you and you're just impacting yourself. You're impacting a whole community of believers. And a root of bitterness in one person can derail the whole church. It's an intense warning he's giving us here. This isn't something we take lightly. So I want to ask us this morning, do you see how poisonous sin is? Do you see how poisonous sin is in your life 
for those who are sitting beside you. It's not meant to make you feel guilty and then to weigh you down with great burdens. It's to highlight the severity of our actions and how much weight they have here today. Do you see how contagious your sin is? Are you watching out for complacency in your life and in the lives of those around you? I need your faith to watch out for mine, okay? But, but, but complacency, it's not the only thing that can destroy us. Other times it can be our twisted appetites. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know that something as simple as a bowl of soup can be our trigger to give it all away. So he says to watch out for foolish indulgence. We live in a culture where more equals better and instant gratification is always preferred. I mean, if that's the option, I'm going instant, right? And I'm going instant for more if I have the option. And we can be short-sighted and let our stomachs guide us and rule us rather than letting the Lord lead us. Um, And in order to show us how these appetites can ruin our lives when they're twisted, he actually gives us a glimpse into the life of an Old Testament character named Esau. And look with me in verses 16 and 17. So see to it, that's the the verb up in verse 15 down to verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You know, in the book of Genesis, we find this tale of, uh, of twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. You know, Esau, he was born seconds before Jacob. Jacob was literally born on the heels <laughs> of, of Esau. But those seconds, those couple seconds, transformed everything for Esau. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the firstborn was given a birthright, where they received the sum total pretty much of the inheritance of the father once he passed away. It was called primogeniture. There you go. There's your word for the day, primogeniture. And uh, what's so interesting right from the get-go is that Esau and Jacob, you can't find two more different twins. <laughs> I mean, Esau, his nickname was Big Red or Edom. He was this burly, hairy guy who would love going out hunting in the fields, spend all day chasing the prey. I mean, he was the man's man, right? And then you find Jacob. He's a little smoother. His name means trickster. And where would you find him? Not in the fields, but he was always with mom in the kitchen, um, he was always messing with the herbs and the spices. I mean, you, you couldn't find two more different twins. And, and what's so funny is one day, well, it's not funny, but it's just interesting. One day Esau comes back from the field and he's exhausted and he smells this lentil soup. And he's been out hunting all day and he didn't catch anything. And he comes and he says, ah, Jacob, give me some of that soup. Mm. Lentil soup and this fresh baked bread. Oh, give it to me. I need it. I'm exhausted. And then Jacob says, ah, 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 no soup for you, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 only way I'll give you some of this tasty lentil soup and this amazing, you know, fresh bread is if you sell me your birthright, if you sell me this great inheritance that you have. And Esau doesn't give it a second thought. He says, well, I'm going to die anyway. What's my birthright to me if I'm dead? Give me some of that food. You can have my birthright. And he sells his whole birthright for a cheap momentary bowl of soup. And if you look in Genesis, it's so fascinating. After he gets the soup, the story is all about the dialogue. And then you get to like the last verse and it says, he sits, he eats, and he leaves. (laughs) 
seriously, it's one sentence. It's so short. And I thought to myself, he wasn't starving. He wasn't absolutely exhausted. But he wanted the soup so desperately. I'm exhausted. I've got to have this soup. He sits, he eats, and he leaves. Really? Did you have to have the soup? And it's a dark story, and it's a warning to all of us. Watch out for the lies of foolish indulgence and in each one of our lives. We all have something in our lives that if we're given the chance, we would trade it all in for. If we're given the chance, what would you trade Jesus for? If you're given the chance, if it was laid at your feet, maybe it's not soup. Maybe it is. I don't know. Mark Tompkins makes some phenomenal soup, by the way. Um, It's tempting. (laughs) But maybe it's not soup for you. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's being sexy. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the safety of your kids. Maybe it's drugs. What is that thing for you that you would trade it all in if you just got it? And even for some of us, we may not even trade it all in at once. It may be over a course of days, we just nibble on the soup. Little slurp there, little slurp there, and then finally we sit down to find the bowl is empty in our hands It has cost us everything. It may not be a one and done deal, but a little by little. You see, sin is a current that pulls us into the sea. We think we're so strong and we can make one small decision and we'll be fine. But sin is so deceptive and it pulls us out further than we ever wanted without us even realizing it. So keep your eyes open. The subtle movement of sin is first you begin to exaggerate how bad it is if you don't have the promises that sin are offering. And then you begin to daydream of how beautiful it would be if you just had that soup. And then you begin to downplay the utter pricelessness of what you have to give up to get that soup. It's my birthright. I'm going to die anyway. Who cares? And it's the tandem of these three that if we're not careful we'll find ourselves standing there in despair like Esau. And this is why I need you to watch out for me for foolish indulgence, and you need me to watch out for you. We don't endure. We won't endure without each other. You know, there's this great story in the ancient Odyssey um, where Ulysses, uh, he makes this pact with his men, and they're about to head into one of the most dangerous aspects of the sea, and as they're going, the, the, the part of the sea is the area of the sirens or the sirens. I never know how to say them correctly. That's um, <laughs> nah, old. Um, the sirens uh, were beautiful, and yet they were these bloodthirsty creatures. And what they would do is they would sing these beautiful songs, which would lure the sailors out of the ship, and they would drown. And then the ships would crash into the rocky crags. Ulysses, what he did is he had his men put wax in their ears and he had them tie him to the mast of the ship. And he said, under no circumstances to tour the route, but continue on. And if I break through the bounds of the ropes, I want you to hold me on this ship with swords if need be. Well, they get to the part where the sirens are and they begin singing their beautiful song. And sure enough, Ulysses goes insane trying so desperately to chase after the serenes and get into the water, which would have meant his death. But thanks to his crew and the faithfulness of his team and the pact they made, they made it through safely without one of them dying. That 
is what we're called to. Someday you're going to come to some situation where you're not going to be able to say no by yourself. You're not going to be able to withstand it on your own. And it's not at that point where we say, oh, woe is me, I wish I was stronger. Sometimes God brings those situations in our lives so that we learn to lean on others, to actually trust in accountability, to admit our weakness. Who's God calling you to make a Ulysses pact with this morning? Because you know those areas in your life. Don't wait until the day of to ask someone to watch out for your faith because by then it might be too late. I need your faith to endure and you need mine. We may not like it. It may scare us half to death. But the good news is, is if you're a follower of Jesus, this isn't the first time you've asked for help, right? Because at the core of the gospel, salvation's primary message is that we can't do this life on our own. We have to first ask for God's divine intervention to save us from our death, to bring us new life. And when God does save you, he never saves you to be alone. He saves you to be in a community, to be the body of Christ, not some little finger cut off and stuck in the corner, but integrated into the body, healthy, growing, and flourishing. He's called you to be a part of a local church where we need each other's faith to endure this race. I recently heard um, something pretty amazing about redwood trees. Um, These things are gigantic, and I'm looking forward to one day going to California. (laughs) That makes it sound like this, a faraway land. (laughs) One day I will go to California um, and see the sequoias. You know, I'd love to see these huge redwood trees. Um, they, They can be as tall as 350 feet. They can be wide in diameter as 24 feet. They can weigh 1.6 million pounds. And that's, that's a heavy-duty tree. And yet, their root system doesn't go deeper than six feet. Interestingly enough, six feet, 350. How on earth do they stay standing? Well, it's because their root system looks like this. Their roots go wide rather than deep, and they interlock with the other trees, such that when the winds come through the forest... They can withstand whatever comes. What a beautiful picture of what the church has been called to be, yes? A place where we are seeing ourselves as interconnected, where we have to be aware of the root of bitterness, this unrepentant sin that can lead to contagious sin and therefore poison a whole community. What a beautiful picture of who we're called to be. Do you see yourself as that interconnected into the church? Do you see yourself as that great in need? I ask you this morning, will you see to it today that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? Will you take on the challenge of God's word for us? Let's pray. Father, we come to you um, so thankful that you came to us first, that while we were enemies, while we were dead in our sin, you died for us. You pursued peace like hunting prey. You pursued our peace and our holiness at the cost of your life. And you so desperately long for us not to fall into this contagious complacency or to fall, to fall so desperately into foolish indulgence that will destroy our lives. God, guard us. Give us strength to ask for help and, and give us strength to receive the help that's offered. It's only by your gospel that we're here this morning, by the good news of Jesus. 
May that be real in our lives and real for us as a church, not just isolated Christians. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, before Jesus died on the cross and before he arose and ascended to heaven, he actually gave us a meal. A meal that unlike Esau, it reminds us of the inheritance we have in Christ. A meal unlike Esau who was rejected for his sin, we see Jesus who was rejected for our sin. A meal in which we celebrate the sharing of the birthright of Christ now with sons and daughters of God. It's in this meal where we hear this good news proclaimed to our senses of taste and touch and smell. And when we come, we find broken bread that represents his broken body for us and common juice that represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. To partake in the Lord's Supper, you do not have to be a member here of this particular church, but we do ask that Jesus Christ be your Lord and Savior. You're pursuing him that he has become your king over your life. Of course, if you would rather, you're welcome to stay in your seats to spend time in prayer and reflection. This is an opportunity to respond, not an opportunity to figure out who's in and who's out. And also, if you do come, you can come down the center aisles, circle around to one of the two communion stations on the flip side there of the dividers, and you'll take the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake together. If your child is with you this morning and they're not of the age where they've made a decision to follow Jesus, you can ask one of the servers. And in the air of Jesus, we seek to bless children, that the the light of Christ would shine on them brilliantly, that they might come to know him. And you can ask your server to do exactly that post the meal. But before we do come, let's remember. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.